Welcome everybody to the Scale Up Show. This is your host, Ryan Staley, and I have an awesome guest on today. I have Casey Ellis, who is the founder of Bug Crowd. Awesome dude running towards 100 million in ARR. And uh, one of the things that's really interesting about him is they were actually the chosen partner by OpenAI to basically try and penetrate or hack OpenAI as an open source program. So you're not going to want to miss this. Check this out. We get super deep on AI with security and just... It was an amazing conversation that I have with Casey. Um, You're not going to want to miss it. Check it out. How do you grow like a VC-backed company without taking on investors? Do you want to create a lifestyle business, a performance business, or an empire? How do you scale to an exit without losing your freedom? Those are the questions, and this show is the answer. Welcome, everybody, to the Scale Up Show. This is your host, Ryan Staley. I have a very special guest with me today. I have Casey Ellis. Casey is the founder, chairman, and CTO of Bug Crowd. He's an 18-year veteran in information security, ranging with clients from startups to multinational corporations as a pen tester, security, and risk consultant. And Casey actually pioneered the crowdsourced security as a service model with the first bug bounty programs on the Bug Crowd platform in 2012. Something else really cool that he's working on that just got announced, speaking of bug bounties, is the bug bounty program with OpenAI that'll pay people up to $20,000, depending on the size of the bug discovery with uh, OpenAI and ChatGPT. Casey, welcome. Happy to have you on the show, man. Thanks for having me. It's good to be yeah, here. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, uh, we almost, we should have, uh, it's like we almost could have recorded the show before the show, the pre show. I like, <laughs> it was such a good conversation. <laughs> I wish I would have had recorded it, but, uh, but that's okay, man. So um, before we get too deep into, you, your founder journey, kind of how you got here. We'd love to hear just kind of where you're at and do a real quick revenue rundown. So where are you guys at in terms of your ARR? Yeah, sure. So, so Bugcrowd's a private company. Um, we're not, uh, you know, necessarily talking about that stuff from the, uh, the top of the rooftops. Um, but you know, we're well on the march towards a hundred million. Uh, and that's, okay. you know, when you think about what we're doing, there's the, the SAS component that we're actually using to, you know, pay the bills. That's the kind of the traditional ARR component. Um, but we are also a marketplace on top of that. So the, uh, the business model is, is an interesting one to explain in a short breath, but that's, uh, that's where we are and what we do. Um, employee wise, we're, we're about 300, uh, 300 employees, um, right around the world. Cause we are very much a, a global business. Um, 350,000 odd researchers signed up on the platform. And we've got customers pretty much everywhere at this point in time. Um, Series D funded uh, as well. Awesome. And then what's your primary go-to-market strategy in terms of growing revenue? Yeah, for sure. The main approach that we've got is is direct. Um, so we've got you know, your, your typical kind of uh, enterprise, mid-market and, and small business segmentation. Um, we do have a, a very active channel program and we're actually investing pretty heavily in, in actually expanding that at the moment. So that's, that's channel in terms of your traditional kind of four legged, you know, go in and, and do the one plus one equals five thing with, uh, with the usual suspects that do that type of work. Um, doing that into federal as well, uh, as, as other parts of, of, you know, the world outside of North America. So EMEA and APAC were leaning quite heavily on the channel side of things. And then there's technology channel as well. I think, you know, when you, when you look at what bug crowd does, Ultimately, the thesis is that, you know, cybersecurity is a human problem. Um, technology just makes it go faster. So, so what we're doing is, is engineering human creativity into gaps that are in the market, um, which puts us in a really good position to partner with companies like Qualys, for example, um, you know, Secure Code Warrior, who do you know, developer security education. Um, you know, mm-hmm. we're identifying where that can be best applied, and then they will in their solution. 
So there's a there's a bunch of different things that happen on the channel side, but the you know the short answer is direct is is our primary go to market right now. Okay, excellent, ma'am. Well, it sounds like you, and I know you made a bunch of recent hires on the revenue side as well for yep. for growth and expansion. So obviously things are taking off for you. So real quick, can you give like a and I, I know you touched upon it a little bit as you're walking through and explaining it, but just like a two sentence summary on what your solution is and who exactly it serves. Yeah, for sure. What our solution is, is it's a platform that basically connects the community of white hat researchers, hackers, you know, digital locksmiths, whatever you want to call them, uh, with different problems that our customers have that, that they need a solution for. So typically uh, the way that we're talked about in the market is, is as a bug bounty platform. You know, a bug bounty is essentially a contest where people compete to find ways to break in in exchange for cash and social recognition. That is one thing that we do. It's definitely the noisiest thing that we do, um, <clears throat> which is why we often get cast as, as being that type of platform. Um, but really, it's actually quite a bit more than that. Uh, we, we run you know, vulnerability disclosure programs for all sorts of companies, um, you know, penetration testing and, and kind of traditional security consulting, uh, as well as you know, tax surface management. This, this whole idea of like, where is my stuff on the internet? Um, there's a bunch of different products that we've got uh, that, that we take out to market as I've just kind of colored in. Uh, but really what we've built to, to facilitate that is a, is a platform that has underneath it, you know, what I like to refer to as like a dating website for people that break computers, right? Like we understand <laughs> the traits of all of the hackers on the platform and then we understand the traits of the problem that needs to be solved on the customer side. Our job is to, is to create a match where it's most likely to be successful for both the hacker and, and the recipient on the customer side. So that's the, the, the tech aspect of it. Okay. Well, yep. love that description. A dating site for people who it's a fun one, computers. Yeah. It, I mean, it, it makes people laugh, but it's actually pretty accurate as well. You know, it, when you, when you think about what a dating website's doing um, and, and the problem it's trying to solve, like you don't know for a fact that romance is there. You just think it probably is. Um, so the, so the goal of a, a site like that is to maximize, you know, the, the likelihood of success. And it's similar with, with vulnerabilities, like they're almost guaranteed to be there. But if you knew where they were, then you wouldn't be talking to us in the first place, right? So it's a bit quite exactly. a similar tech problem to solve. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I like that. So so how did you get here, right? Like you're approaching, you're running towards 100 mil. You're about 11 years into this, which is fantastic, man. Congrats on all your success. That's amazing. Thank you. Uh, how How did you get to this point, right? Like... And, and, and talk to us about a little bit like the emotional journey as well. Like, <laughs> as you know, <laughs> um, as a founder, there's there's some ups and downs, right? But we'd love to hear that kind of how you got here and um, just walk us through it. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, <clears throat> I think it was funny in your intro, I've got to update that because I've pretty much been doing security as a career since I finished high school, which was um, 1999. So uh, yeah, we're, okay. we're, we're so, pushing we're pushing up on twenty four years now. I think it's going to be twenty plus. <laughs> we'll leave it as, we'll nine years that. off, man. So sorry about that. <laughs> Close enough though. Um, yeah, look, I, I grew up. You know, my my parents. Um, you know, my father in particular was a science teacher, and and very much a kind of a you know a, a free thinker, someone who you know wanted to push boundaries. Like he was always bringing technology home and encouraging me to tear it apart and put it back together. Um, and my mom on, on the other side was also an entrepreneur. She actually ended up becoming, uh, doing her master's in clinical psychology and, and setting up a practice. So I always had that sort of, you know, challenger, builder, entrepreneurial kind of 
you know, DNA. Um, I mean, both in terms of me being their son, but that was just around the house growing up. So I, I sort of grew up not really knowing how to do anything differently, if that, if that makes sense. It's, it's just, mm-hmm. you know, that, that kind of hacker curiosity and intrigue and, and tenacity was something that um, I, I was definitely uh, raised to have in, in, in hindsight. Um, but yeah, finishing high school, uh, basically um, skipped university and actually got straight into a network engineering apprenticeship. And I'd been hacking a whole bunch of stuff as a kid, you know, not wanting to, the funny thing about it was, um, you know, having this kind of appreciation for criminal creativity, but not wanting to be a bad guy. If that makes sense. It's like, I like how bad guys think. And there's, there's something that I'm curious about in, in, in that kind of thought process, but I don't want to cause harm myself. That's not, you know, the kind of person that I am. Um, and yeah, when I got into network engineering, I realized that you could actually break into other people's stuff because they've asked you to. Um, and there's an actual legitimate career path in, in, in doing that, which was, you know, kind of all my Christmases came at once at that point. And, and that really kicked off my career in information security. So did that for about six years and then actually moved across into, uh, into solutions engineering and sales. Um, you know, there, there was a, a point in time where it's like, well, you know, I can compute a good, but you know, I actually like people as well and, and communication and sales and solutioneering and all these different things. Um, what I hadn't realized up until that point is that people that, you know, are technologists aren't often capable on the, on the, on the human side and vice versa. So the fact that I actually had the ability to do both, um, that was, that was kind of an opportunity for me to go off and do sales for a bit. And I was good at it. I really enjoyed it. You know, there's a, there's a lot of growth that I saw in, in, in that period and in that role. And that's really when I got it in my head that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Um, it's like, okay, if I can do the techie piece and the solution piece, but I can also take that solution and connect it to where the problem exists out there in the market, that's really kind of the fundamental elements of product market fit and, and actually building a business. Like maybe I could do a startup one day. Um, and yeah, you know, fast forward, uh, probably five or six years after that, a, a couple of false starts, a few things that work quite well. Uh, and then I had the idea for bug crowd and now we're here. So, well, yeah, you gloss with that. So you had five or six years where you said, <laughs> there's, said like, there's a dot, dot, dot in the middle there. That's quite, quite, quite <laughs> dot, a dot, dot, we're here, right? Yeah. But you said the five or six years where things didn't go well, like what, what happened? Did you have some failed businesses that just that you face planted on or just jobs or one in particular, like I had a couple that worked really well. The the precursor to bug crowd was actually like a effectively a white labeled security services business where I had a team in Argentina and the Philippines that I'd front end locally in Sydney. Um, and then white label, uh, through SIs and VARs that, you know, had the ability to sell security consulting services, but didn't have the people to do the work. So that was kind of the alpha version of bug crowd in a lot of ways. That was actually a really good business. Like I, I miss it occasionally because uh, I definitely slept a lot more <laughs> when that was going on. But yeah, the problem that I had with it was really this fundamental idea that one person being paid by the hour is never going to be able to outsmart all of the, uh, all of the adversaries that are out there on the internet, you know, who are incentivized by success. Like we needed a way to level the playing field. And that was the irrational founder kind of annoyance, um, that, that got me motivated to, to what eventually became bug crowd. Um, but yeah, faceplant wise, uh, probably the funnest one we had like in, uh, kind of an import export business. I'm a musician. I've, I've played drums and, and done audio engineering pretty much my entire life. And I'd built out a little studio um, and, you know, I started kind of selling bits of gear on eBay um, 
to fund, you know, new stuff, right? And and realized that I could probably get a, you know, four to five hundred percent markup um, just because, you know, at that point in time, people weren't as comfortable shipping things across the Pacific from from mm-hmm. the US to Australia as they are today, right? So there was an arbitrage, um, you know, margin opportunity there that frankly I tripped over by accident. Um, but uh, you know, once we realized that that was working, um, that thing cranked up to probably forty or fifty grand a month. Uh, wow. And yeah, that, that was fun. Um, but then, you know, I think probably the, the face plant bit, which I will now get to, cause I'm telling you all the good stuff. Uh, <laughs> you know, I read four hour work week, got it in my head that outsourcing was easy. Um, and at the time eBay didn't have, you know, the equivalent of Google analytics. So there was, there was no way to get telemetry on what had brought people to a listing. You just kind of had to guess. Um, so I, I got some money together, um, you know, contracted a, uh, a, a, a development team and, and basically built like Google analytics for, for eBay. Um, it had viral loops in it. It was, it was, you know, a great little kind of idea. The thing that I missed was, was basically platform risk. Um, because that, that thing was growing quite nicely until eBay decided they wanted to do it themselves. Um, and, and they crippled what I was doing in the process and it went from, you know, being on quite a good uh, trajectory to, to basically being worthless almost overnight. So that was, that was definitely, um, you know, it was a fun time. I think I, I, I learned a ton from that. That's, that's the thing. I actually don't regret that experience, uh, because, you know, in hindsight, there was some really simple mistakes, um, that, that I you know should have been able to avoid, but most mistakes are like that. And, uh, you know, that, that taught me a lot about partnerships and, you know, working with larger players and, and how to make sure that you've got a relationship or at least awareness of the fact that you're trying to partner with them in place before you go off and double down. Um, there's a lot of different things that came out of that. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. And, uh, so how big was the business when, when the rug got pulled out from you? It was, it was early. Like we, we just come out of beta. I think we we're probably five, 6,000 users. Um, but what was happening right when it when when it got um, kind of nixed was the uh, the viral loops were starting to kick in. So there was a there was a widget that you'd put on your page um, that actually showed, um, you know, it was a, like a backlink to the to the site itself. And you know, the more people used it, the more that that widget would be shown, and and that was actually really starting to kick in from like a, a network effect and, and a viral growth standpoint. So yeah, I think. Um, uh, not sure exactly what the viral coefficient was at that point in time, but it was just at that point where you could see it starting to lift. So it was, uh, it was kind of a bummer, but, um, yeah, as I said, it's one of those things where, you know, the lessons from that in terms of the things that worked, for example, that viral lift, like we've used a lot of those same principles and how we grow the supply side of bug crowd. Um, cause that was definitely working and that was kind of independent of, of, you know, the actual business strategy itself. Uh, but then on the strategy side, yeah, making sure that, you know, you've probably the biggest lesson from that is if you're going to put all of your eggs in one basket in terms of building around a particular platform, make sure you've got a relationship with that platform. Um, cause I think had I've done that differently, I probably could have gotten that company acquired. Oh yeah. Mm. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yep. So, and, and it's so funny cause I, this is what always happens. I'm so, I had no intention of talking to you about this, but you brought it up Sure. and, um, viral loops, right? So, mm. You mentioned you incorporated it into your product now, and I'm obsessed with those two, to an extent, I should say. Um, I found them fascinating because there's ways where you could digitally do them and manually do them as well that I've seen. And so 
like, I guess, what's your mental framework for integrating those into either the product or the experience? And like, how do you approach it for, or how would you approach it, I guess, for, for any SaaS product? I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, for sure. I think virality is, is really um, poorly understood. You know, I, I, I think you know, a lot of the time people think, oh, it's just to you know, put a share now button on a, on a site um, or, or on a particular page, you know, make, make something shareable. That is a part of it. Um, but to me, the step back from that is like what makes the person want to share it? You know, how, how are you actually adding value? Um, there's, a, there's a key principle the bug crowd has, um, which is, you know, don't be valuable, create value. And, and we try to apply that. That to me actually plugs straight into, into you know, viral marketing and, and, you know, being able to create a viral coefficient using network effect because you want to give the person who's ultimately going to be your carrier something um, that's, that's valuable to them, right? Um, so as mm-hmm. long as you can figure out a way to do that, and then you make sure that that payloads as transmissible as it can possibly be. Um, you know, it's got to be simple. It's got to it's got to get the point across to you know the the potential target um, or, or targets. Um, they've got to be able to grok it quickly because you don't want to put the responsibility on the carrier to explain what you're doing. You, know, you just want to give them a thing that they can you know spread around. If that makes sense. Um, there's a bunch of stuff I haven't actually, I've, I've, I've got some stuff that I've written down that kind of summarizes this, I think a little bit more, I, I wasn't prepared to talk about this right now. So it's a bit more eloquent <laughs> than how I'm putting it right now. But yeah, that idea of just, you know, how do you deposit something that people want to take and share and, and how do you, you know, activate the innate maven um, in everyone? You, like you go back to Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point, right? You've got mavens and connectors. And those are particular identities that exist and that you can find, you know, in terms of influencer marketing and stuff like that. Uh, but my, my personal thesis on that is that everyone has at least some degree of Maven and some degree of connector in them that they want to access. So it's a question of how do you actually switch that on? Um, that's, where you're, that's where you end up giving them value and that's where those loops start to kick in. Well, let me ask you this. Have you, because this is where I think of it a little bit from a different perspective than you, but similar as well. Right. So sure. we can move on from this. Uh, I, it was just one of the things you brought up. So, no, um, I, I mean, I'm fascinated by this subject as well. So, you know, I'm, I'm happy to nerd out on this. That's fine. Have you, have you, in, as a company, have you integrated any viral loops into customer to prospect referrals? Yeah. So, so one of the things that we've done there, I mean, you could, you could argue that a lot of what we do with um, the public programs that we run. So basically when you think about the different types of activities you can conduct on the bug crowd platform, there's the private stuff, which is actually the bulk of what we do. So these are, these are programs that, you know, no one really knows that they're going on except for the people that are involved. Um, but then on the other side of the house, you've got programs that are actually public, right? Um, so, you know, a good example is this whole thing with, with open AI. Um, they're, they're doing that because they want to get, and, and attract security researchers to, you know, make sure that their product's secure and like get constant security feedback, all of those different things that are good um, and that are kind of fundamental to why you do this in the first place. But then, you know, you saw like the marketing splash um, that, that happened off, off the launch of that program. You know, this idea of going out to the open internet and saying, hey, come and hack us. Like we as an organization <clears throat> aren't going to pretend that vulnerabilities are a thing that don't happen. As a, as, a, as a product of human creativity. Like that's, you know, humans are awesome at stuff, but we screw up occasionally. And sometimes that 
creates a vulnerability, like no one's immune from that. So as an organization, it takes to me this sort of step of maturity to be able to actually go out and say, cool, we're not perfect. Um, we're doing the best we can, but we want help. Um, that to me is actually a, a pretty powerful statement to make and doing everything that we can to allow OpenAI to actually promote that as a, as a you know, secondary benefit of the security program. That's an example of, of how we've baked that into the, uh, the model. Okay, excellent. So. Love that. Hello, this is Ryan here. Real quick, if you are enjoying this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment or review. If you want more help or just want to learn more about what the top SaaS CEOs and founders are doing, check out my website at www.ryanstaley.io. Join my newsletter, check out other free content resources I have there, and let me know if you want to scale your business. Now back to the episode. So like, how did that partnership come about like with OpenAI? Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting one. Um, you know, in, in terms of, I, I mean, we've been, we've been around now for a long time. I think we've, we've got, we're, we're definitely not the only player, uh, who's, who's kind of baking the cake in the, in the way that we, we bake it. Right. Um, but from a leadership standpoint and from a, you know, pushing the, the needle forward in terms of what crowdsourcing security actually looks like what it can mean and how it's relevant to the market we've we've got a 10-year history of, of being pretty much on the bleeding edge of that so when new stuff comes out um we get we tend to get a phone call um you know this happened with connected cars back in 2015 it happened with like election equipment in in, in 2018 um you know with ai it's it was one of those ones where i think we were just a logical uh place to um you know reach out and, and start a conversation. The other side of it is that, um, you know, this is actually another product of having been around for a while doing this and trying to do it as best we possibly can. Um, there's folks that we'd worked with in the past on, on the program side at different companies um, who were now at OpenAI who just understood what it was like to work with us. It's like, this is a thing that we can get value from. This is a thing that is actually quite difficult to do. Um, but BugCrowd's been, you know, thoughtful in how they've, constructed their platform and how they run programs, all those different things. There's a, a trust, I guess, in, in us as an organization that um, just made it easier for them. So yeah, there was a conversation uh, a couple of months back where it's like, well, what do you guys do in AI? What do you guys do in, in machine learning? Um, you know, there's a lot of exciting potential uh, in, in a you know partnership between a company that does human powered crowdsourcing in the way that we do. And like a large language, uh, large language learning model um, organization like OpenAI. So there's all of the kind of nerding out that can happen around that. But the you know the fundamental thing was we just want to start a, a bug bounty program and make sure that we're we're you know building out this relationship with the security community because you know this space is moving at a million miles an hour, and um, the things that we're going to be thinking about from a security standpoint in 12 months time are probably very different to the ones that we're thinking about right now. Like the only way yeah. you can continue to keep up with that is if you've got this kind of crowd of, you know, thoughtful, creative, um, you know, hackerish people um, just thinking around corners for you. So that's really how I got started. That's awesome, man. I mean, yeah. I, I imagine the PR on that alone has, has had to have been amazing for you as an organization. It's it's busy. Like we, we're going to... Um, we'll be doing some stuff uh, over the next couple of weeks in terms of the actual stats 
of the program itself when it launched. Um, and, and just the general, you know, what it's done is it's actually basically bootstrapped uh, a lot of interest in understanding, you know, how to think about machine learning and AI on the crowd side uh, with a security mindset, because that's not a new discipline. Like we, we've been doing that stuff since 2017, 2016, even with, uh, you know, autonomous vehicles and social media. And there's all sorts of areas where this is already in play, but, you know, something that we were talking about before, before we started rolling, like chat GPT, I think dropped on the entire internet all at once, what AI actually is and what it can do. And, and, mm-hmm. you know, basically triggered all of this sort of creative thought around how it could be applied. When you put that in the hands of someone like me, who's like, thinks bad, but does good. Right. Um, all of a sudden we're thinking all about the security implications of that. So, you know, the, the fact that we've been able to activate a community um, to, to really start to bone up and, and, you know, stay ahead of this stuff as it evolves over the next, you know, year, two years, three years, five years. Um, that to me is pretty exciting too. Well, it, I mean, that brings my next point is like with that large language model being kind of, I don't want to say released into the wild, but you know, I mean, it kind of was right. Like we're talking about. So like, how has that been impacting like what's possible with protection and uh, at the same time with, with penetration and, and cybersecurity as a whole, because I mean, just as fast as AI is getting released and new tools are getting released every day. I mean, I'm seeing jailbreaks on that are published all the time about different ways and different things that you could do. You see, you know, auto GPT came out where you have groups of agents that could, do whatever. So, I mean, just what's your perspective on all that, man? Yeah, it's, uh, there's, there's a bunch of different dimensions to it. Um, you know, one is security of, of LLM itself. Um, so like the, you know, the jailbreaking side of things, hallucinations, um, there's all sorts of disciplines around securing the model itself that are all relatively new. And, and given mm-hmm. the fact that every model is different, um, you know, they're, they're, they're oftentimes unique depending on the model that you're interacting with at the time. So that's, that's a nascent space that's accelerating pretty rapidly at the moment. Um, I think in terms of the use of, of LLMs and, and GAI in, in security, like as a consumer, so like switching gears from like attacking LLMs to actually using them for attack and for defense. Um, there's a lot happening. Uh, you know, I think in, in general, what, what I've seen, um, is, is people kind of using it to accelerate, you know, time to success, uh, on, on, you know, whatever it is they might be doing. So if you, if you've got, um, you know, an exploit that you're trying to write to, to, you know, trigger a vulnerability and prove the fact that it's actually vulnerable. And if there's something that's stopping you doing that, uh, you know, you can like go read through, tons of manuals or, or, you know, invite people to know this stuff to come in and collaborate or whatever else, or you can start throwing questions at a, at an LLM, um, and actually have it be your partner in, in getting to a point of success. Like there's a lot of that going on. Um, I think now with, with the API access, um, being made available for chat GPT, there's been, you know, a lot of work on integrations in terms of, okay, here's what I've, you know, scanned and looked at like in this target environment, like what can I do next? What are the different options that are available to me as a, as an attacker? And, um, you know, I'm, I'm talking about all of this with the white hat on, um, in, in terms of, you know, people that do this stuff for the sake of actually disclosing that to the company so they can fix it. I think those same, you know, possibilities exist to the adversary as well. Um, you know, on the bad guy side, there's definitely been a lot of use of, of large language models for, for spam and phishing and, and, and different things like that. I think, you know, the, um, 
the rate at which you can attack uh, like a large group of people and try to convince them to do something that they shouldn't. Um, you know, AI is a very powerful tool uh, to, to be able to do that. And maybe it's not as believable uh, as, as when a human writes, you know, like a, a spear phishing email, for example. Um, but if I can send the, send that, you know, email out in a customized way to 10 million people instead of 100,000 people, I'm going to make up for it in, in volume. Um, so there's, you know, definitely a lot of things happening on, on the offensive side. And defense-wise, uh, you know, it, it's like threat. I think cyber threat intelligence is is one area where I've seen people using, uh, you know, AI alerts. Like, who is this bad actor? We've seen these different behaviors going on in our systems. Here are different like indicators of compromise or, or rules that that we've we've been able to kind of derive from a breach that we've just suffered. Like, who is this? Who are we dealing with here? Um, being able to you know pass questions like that into this vast library that potentially has the answer uh, that's that's something that's happening um, this is going to be a lot of innovation I mean I think the the it's exciting I'm, I'm actually jazzed for um, you know b-sides and, and RSA uh, coming to San Francisco next week just to sit down with people that are thinking about this stuff and ideate you know what have you come up with like if you cook this particular existing security idea, with, with AI in this particular way, you can get this magnified outcome. Um, I know there's a lot of thought going into that. So there's going to be some good jams next week, I think. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome, man. Well, that's really great perspective. We are getting close up on time. So, uh, and I, I love how you, you hit both sides, the, the, protect, the white hat and the black hat, right? Like kind of looking at it from both angles, so, yeah. which I'm sure is what you do all day. But, Pretty much, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but anyways, um, we, we're almost up on time. A couple of questions for you though, just to kind of round things out. Or like, what would you say, because I'm sure you've had a hell of a journey. You've, you've been an entrepreneur since the age of 19. It sounds like almost like pretty much yep. <laughs> um, embedded in your blood with your parents. So what would you say is like the single best strategy you have for, for growing a tech company? Um, my favorite definition of, of founder uh, is, is someone who gets irrationally pissed off about a problem they think they can solve. Um, I, I got that from a friend who was in the incubator uh, that, that Bug Crowd started life in back in Australia. And you can probably hear the Aussie <laughs> in, in, the, in, that, in that statement. I think it, it really is about finding things that, you, that you're truly in love with. Um, you know, like working on a problem that, that you're actually passionate about. There's no shortage of ways to, to build, build companies and, and make money and just have some sort of growth focused outcome. Um, but for me, I... You know, I want to see like the production of wealth be a product of actually solving the problem that I've set out to solve, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Um, and yeah, to me, like if, if you've got that, that conviction around what you're trying to do, um, that's the, that's the thing that gets you out of bed in the mornings when, you know, sometimes you don't necessarily want to, um, cause it's a, it's a roller coaster. You know, there, there's, there's like high points, there's low points, like you can have, you know, six of each on any given day. Um, and you know, most founders would say a similar thing. It's, it's an incredible experience, but it is definitely one that, um, you know, takes you through, through a very broad spectrum of emotions. So just having that conviction around like why you got into this in the first place and making sure that you're, you're really kind of locked in on, on that. Um, I think that's really important. That's something that I've always used. I've never worked on something that I didn't believe in. Um, and it's, you know, it's partly because I just have a hard time doing that. Um, that's probably partly my, my wiring, uh, and, and some aspects of that are probably quite personal, but I think it is a thing that can apply to most, to most folk as a, you know, a, a decent box to tick. Um, 
Yeah. And, and, you know, making sure that you're, you're actually, you know, returning to those things if you feel like you need to, like there was a period, um, with, with bug crowd where, you know, the two reasons I started the company was to connect this latent, you know, latent potential that's locked up in the, the white hat community with this unmet demand in, in, in the market and create a business out of doing that. But the other was to basically reform the way that, you know, the, the internet collectively, um, thinks about hacking because it is dual use, right? It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not necessarily a good thing. It's something that can be used for good and bad, but the perception that we started off with, you know, back in 2012 was that it's always a bad thing. So I wanted to change that. And, um, you know, I feel like we've made some, some pretty decent strides on that. Um, you know, in 20, 2016, we started working on, uh, you know, pretty aggressively pushing towards seeing some of the laws around hacking change in a way that accommodates for the fact that, you know, there are people like me that do this stuff for good. Like we're, we're actually trying to make the internet a better place. It looks similar to what the bad guys do and that's where it can legally become kind of challenging. Um, but the reason it's there is to actually improve things. So how do we change the laws to make sure that, you know, the work that we're doing isn't chilled by the fact that, you know, what we do can look like criminal activity from time to time. And, um, yeah, we've, we've seen that happen. Like there was some, some charging rule changes made by the department of justice, uh, just at the beginning of last year. So that was, you know, eight years of, you know, six years of gestation before that popped out, um, and, and actually, you know, made a difference and was seeing similar things happen out of, you know, election security, um, you know, things happening out of the Department of Homeland Security where, you know, hackers are being called in to, to protect all of the state and, and federal agencies on the civilian side here in the US. Similar things in the UK and Australia, all that kind of stuff. They're all good for business, but the reason, you know, I, I, I get involved in some of that stuff is because that's just part of my mission drive. Um, and I think as a founder, making sure that you're, you know, returning to that and if you feel like there's gaps and there's not enough of that actually happening as a part of your business, finding ways to scratch that itch and continue to put the first things first. I think that's a really important thing to do. I know it's been helpful for me. That's awesome. Hmm. Well, uh, do we have time for one more question or do we have to go? I know we're just I'm about up on time. I'm okay. Good. So I didn't think of this until like, this is what I said, man. This is why I love this show. <laughs> I didn't think of this until just something you said just sparked me when you're talking about protecting, protecting kind of at, at scale, right? Yeah. And the government, you mentioned that. TikTok. It wasn't even on my radar right now. <laughs> Okay, so um, and he's and if you're listening, he's he's making some weird faces right now. So <laughs> when we talk about that, and you don't have to answer this question if you don't want to, if you have whatever. But like, I, I guess my question is, is like, I, I think it's going to get banned. Maybe that's just my opinion, but I think it's going to eventually get banned because the what I've read on it, the level of intrusion of how much data gets pulled, and and maybe it's wrong, but maybe that's just what I've read that it's it's beyond anything else. So what's your thought on the level of security with that? Um, do you think it should be banned and safe? And, you know, just what's your perspective on it? Sure. Let me just stop my thingies from bipping here. Cause I'm not quite sure why it's doing that. <clears throat> yeah. Look, I think with, with, you know, there's a, there's a couple of different issues around it. Um, you know, social, social media platforms, ultimately that they're, they're you know, advertising platforms, right? Like they're, they're, they're set up to, to generate advertising revenue for, for the company. And a lot of the information that you collect on your users in order to do that is, you know, it, it could be seen as invasive or it could be seen as fine depending on who, 
who's right. kind of you yeah. know, pulling the levers, right? So it's it's an interesting one in terms of yeah you know, the question of like is TikTok any more um, invasive in terms of the the information it's asking for from its users than say Facebook or, or yeah, Twitter or, 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 or any of those other platforms. Um, Jury's out on that one, uh, and, and that's you know, I'm not going to pass a comment so much on what I think the answer to that question is, but I think that's the right question to ask, right? Okay. Um, that said, uh, you know, because of the ability for a social media platform to basically influence the way you know a group of people think um, at scale, right? Like we we saw this with with um, election disinformation uh, in in 2016 and again in 2020. It's like, okay, we, you know, we've, we've sort of, you know, conversations around like post-truth and, and all of these different things. Like those are relatively new ideas that I actually think have been brought about by, by you know, just the rate of information and, and the ability for social media to basically change the way a group of people thinks um, in, in such a short space of time. Um, that's a very powerful tool. So, you know, in, in terms of, of TikTok, um, you know, being used potentially uh, for, for that purpose in a way that negatively affects um, North America. I think that's probably the root of a lot of the concern uh, that, that the yeah. folk have around it. Um, and I don't really see that concern going away. I think that that becomes less of a technology problem and more an issue of like, where are we up to in terms of the great power relationship between uh, between you know the West and, and, and the PRC. So yeah, I, I do think we're probably gonna end up in a position where, um, it, it does get it does get banned or it does get throttled back. Um, there's there's definitely been a progression of decisions of that nature that have happened over the past couple of years. If you look at you know some of the the, the IT stuff that's gotten booted booted out, you know Huawei, like all those different things. I think this is kind of the consumer version of that. Um, how exactly that plays out and when and and you know to what degree will there be blowback and all of those other things? Not really sure. Um, but yeah, that to me is is really kind of the essence of the problem. It's this idea of, you know, if, if you've got a, a country or a state that's considered hostile to varying degrees, like, do you want them, you know, in a position where they can influence the way that your population views truth and, and, and reality? Like, to what degree do you think that's okay? Um, and then, you know, to what degree as a government do you feel like is appropriate to regulate that? Um, it's it's a really sticky subject. This is why I was pulling faces when you brought it up. Cause it's one of those ones that I do think about a lot. Um, and there's definitely, you know, you gotta be careful with some of the opinions that can, can get thrown around on this one, but I also don't think it's an easy one to answer. Yeah, no, I mean, you, you, uh, you touched them all way more articulate than I did in terms of, uh, covering all angles. Uh, <laughs> because like, I don't know. It's like, it's at the same time, like, I mean, I'm not personally on the platform, but I'm sure there's value in it. And there's, there's, it's like political napalm as well. Like if, yeah. if you ban it and you're in office, like that could just total it's, disenfranchise you from like a certain age demographic for the rest of your life. Right. Yeah, yeah, so, sure. and, um, I mean, it could even, it could even tip over into, you know, like becoming a constitutional problem. Like is this, is this yeah. inhibition of free speech? um through that platform is that you know like there's there's all sorts of really and not saying i agree with that point of view but there's all of these different kind of unintended consequences that are that are kind of bubbling up pretty quickly around that i do i mean going back to what you're saying before about um information collection and privacy and all that kind of stuff i do see this as more of an information warfare problem than than a cybersecurity problem um 
that that's that's probably one call out that I'd make there because the whole idea of you know oh TikTok knows where you are it's like yeah like most of the apps on your phone know where you are yeah. that's not it's <laughs> not a TikTok thing that's a that's a privacy thing and that's that's you know frankly almost a post privacy artifact that you know the majority of the population don't necessarily think through um, let alone are aware of in the first place so it's not that's not so much the issue it's more you know the information environment and and you know how again large groups of people are being kind of you know led to think reality works um, you know who, whose hands do you want that to be in and, and to what degree is there an ability to control that and to what degree is that appropriate in the first place like it's yeah. uncharted waters I think it's wild, man. We do a whole other episode on that alone. Yeah, so. that's, a, that's a deep well, one. That's a really, that's a really respect your time. Point. So Casey, it was really awesome having you on the show. It was a lot of fun. Where can people find you? Where can they find out more about Bug Crowd? And then we'll wrap this up. Yeah, for sure. So Bug Crowd is just bugcrowd.com, B-U-G-C-R-O-W-D.com for those who tripped over my accent. And I apologize. Um, I am on Twitter, Casey John Ellis. It's, it's probably the easiest place to find me. And uh, yeah, feel free to reach out and say, hey. Excellent, man. Well, it was great chatting with you. Love, love the conversation. So thanks for being on the show. Likewise. Cheers. Thank you for checking out the Scale Up Show. My mission in life is to help founders and revenue leaders avoid all the pain and suffering in revenue and growth so they can flip it and create a life of their own design. So if you enjoyed this show, please like, review, share it on social, and more importantly, just share it with a friend. Share it with someone that you think could learn and benefit from what you heard on today. But the more we get the message out, the more people we could help, the bigger the impact we make, and the bigger the community gets, which helps everybody. So once again, thank you for being a loyal listener. I appreciate you and look forward to seeing you on the next episode.